Thank you. Man, Merry Christmas. You guys doing all right? It is good to be with you. We're actually in the second week of Advent here at Spanish River. And Advent is an opportunity. This is something that the church has been celebrating for well over a thousand years. It's an opportunity for us to remember the coming and the arrival of Jesus into the world. It comes actually from the Latin for arrival or coming. And so this is an opportunity for us to do that, to rejoice and to praise God for all that he has done in the coming of Jesus. But it's not just that. It's not just that we look back, but it's also an opportunity for us to what? But to gaze forward, to look forward at the horizon and what God is doing and when he will return and truly make all things new. As John says in Revelation, he will return and we will dwell with him here and he will wipe away every tear. Death will be no more. Sin will be no more. And we anxiously, a good anxiousness, await that day. So this season of Advent is a time for us to slow down, right? It's a time for us to relax a little bit, to reflect on the King who has come and the King who will come again. But it's tough to slow down, ain't it? I mean, this is the time of season when everything picks up. You've got holiday parties, you've got company parties, you've got stuff with the neighborhood, you've got family coming into town, maybe you're going somewhere and distractions come out of everywhere. So one of the things that we've been trying to do as a family is intentionally trying to slow down in the evenings. We haven't done this every evening, but I went and so we turn everything off and we're like, hey, we're just, we're just gonna read or we're gonna play a game or we're just gonna try to slow down at the end of the night. And so. On our TV, I downloaded an app for a 4K fireplace. It's like the most Florida thing ever. And uh, I put on a fire, like uh, this beautiful picturesque crackling fire on the TV. And then we put on Christmas carols. And so a lot of the ca- uh, classics, right? Like we've got like Bing Crosby going. We've got Michael Buble's album. That's a solid album right there. Like the classics, right? Like for those of you in your 40s, what's up? Little uh, Alvin and the Chipmunks Christmas, which apparently my kids don't appreciate. They don't know good music. But we look at, we just try to slow down to some degree. And I'm sure many of you all have your favorite Christmas carols, right? You could probably think of Christmas carols that you've grown up with or Christmas carols that you love. Well, today we have an opportunity to slow down and reflect. And we have an opportunity to look at together the actual very first Christmas carol that is recorded in the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be looking at Mary's song, her song of praise. It's called the Magnificat, which comes from the Latin, which is the opening of this song of praise. And Mary is going to lift this up in in Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, verse 46 through 55. So if you have a Bible, please join with me. Again, we're going to be in Luke chapter 1, picking up in verse 46 through 55. So it's just 10 short verses. It will be up on the screen, and you can follow along with us as well there if you would like. The word of the Lord is recorded from Luke in his first chapter, verse 46. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. 
For he looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he has spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, in this season of Advent, Lord, it is an opportunity for us to slow down and reflect, to rejoice and to bring praise for the King who has come and Lord, who will come again. Lord, I know many of us come into this room with distractions. Many of us come with burdens And Lord, I pray that you would meet us here this morning. Lord, that your spirit would descend in this room, that you would strengthen us, that you would calm us, that you would encourage us. Not only through this song, but through the goodness of your gospel. In Jesus' name, we pray this in all things. Amen. Amen. You know, thinking back, this very first Christmas carol, perhaps you've heard that one Christmas carol, Mary, Did You Know?, Have you heard that one? Mary, did you know it's a popular Christmas carol? It's been covered by a number of different artists. But in that song, one of the things that the artist says is he's he's singing to Mary. And he says, Mary, do you know that this child that you've birthed, this child is going to walk on water. This child is going to give sight to the blind. This child is going to calm the storms. And at one point in that song, the artist says, Mary, this child whom you have delivered will soon deliver you. And it's interesting, right? Because the New Testament authors don't necessarily give us a whole lot of insight into what Mary knew in particular about the child that she was carrying. But I think in this Psalm and what we're going to see today is that Mary actually had a pretty good idea of the child she was carrying and what he was going to accomplish. Mary's song, if you look at the very beginning, is what? But it's a song of praise. It follows Hannah's song found in 1 Samuel chapter 2. She gives birth to, that, to the last great prophet uh, or the last great judge and a prophet of Israel, Samuel. And both of these are songs of praise. And there's a lot of excitement in them. You see that in verse 46 and 47. What does Mary say? She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices. Now the words that she uses here when she says soul and spirit is this all-encompassing joy. This isn't just like a yay. This is like a seriously excited young woman. And she's excited about the prospect of giving birth, but it goes so much deeper than that. And that's what we're going to look at here. Now, what brought her to this point of excitement is interesting. Mary, earlier in Luke, had been visited by the angel Gabriel. And Gabriel visits this young woman, maybe 14, 15 years old, and he says, Mary, blessed are you among women, because you are going to give birth to a son. You're going to name him Jesus. And he is going to sit on David's throne and his kingdom will know no end. 
Now, Mary, Mary is not an ignorant young woman. She knows how this works. And she's like, Gabriel, I've, I've never slept with a man. I mean, I, I don't know a lot, but I know it takes two to tango here. And Gabriel's like, Mary, Mary, blessed are you, for you will conceive through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now go, go to your relative's house, Elizabeth, for she also is pregnant. And so Elizabeth had, be, had conceived with her husband, Zachariah. They had a young child, or she was pregnant with a young child who would become John the Baptist. And so Mary goes and spends some time with Elizabeth. And it's actually when she meets Elizabeth, the scripture tells us that John in Elizabeth's womb begins to kick and bounce with joy. Now, I've never carried a child. God has not given me that ability, but my wife has, and I have, I have felt the kicking of a child, and I have seen quite literally like this motion go across her stomach. I don't know if it was a hand or a butt or a foot or what it was, but it was crazy. And I imagine something like that for Elizabeth. And she prophesies to Mary and she says, Mary, blessed are you and blessed is the child that is within you. And it's in this moment that everything in Mary comes out and this prayer of praise and rejoicing just pours forth. But there's three things in particular, three specific things briefly I want us to look at because Mary's song, yes, is a song of praise and rejoicing. And that's what this season is about, right? Generosity, but joy and rejoicing in what God has done through Jesus. But why? There's something rooted in it. And the first of those that we see picks up right in the second half of 47. Look at verse 47, look at verse 48, and look at verse 49. She says that God is my savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. The root of the praise and rejoicing that Mary brings, the root of not just Mary's praise, but yours and mine who are in Jesus, is an understanding that salvation has come. Mary, right off the bat, says what? She says that, in God my Savior, in God, my Savior. There are many theological positions that would say, look, Mary was someone who never knew sin, that she was perfect as Jesus was. But understand, that is not the case. Mary, no different than you and I, was affected by sin. And she declares that here in this song. She says, God is my Savior. I need a Savior as much as anyone. And she continues on when she says, for God has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Many commentators will point to that and they'll say, well, the humble estate she's referring to is her lot in life, her position in life. This is a, a young woman in an ancient world, so she's already stepped down. She's a Jew living under the oppressive rule of the Romans. She comes from a far less affluent family as well. But many commentators, and I agree with this, is that that Mary is not so much talking about her physical position in life, but her spiritual. She's like, why would God ever choose me? 
Does he not know who I am? Does he not know my sin? Does he not know my shortcoming? Mary is incredibly wise and incredibly honest with herself. I've been asked the question, I've been asked the question, Brian, why can't people just worry about themselves? Why is it that people always have to try and fix and deal with everybody else's problems? Right? I'm sure that's something that nobody in here has ever dealt with. Right? Why is it that my spouse always has to worry about me? Or why, why is it so difficult for these other families? Why don't they deal with their own kids before they start dealing with me? Or what about these coworkers? Or what about these neighbors? Right? And I've answered people. I've said, I, I'll tell you one reason why I think that is. Because I think it's a lot easier for us to focus on other people's faults and to focus on other people's brokenness than it is to look at our own selves. Because I think if we do the hard work of genuinely looking into our soul and looking into our heart, I don't think, I don't think we're gonna like what we see. We're gonna see lusts and we're gonna see jealousies and we're gonna see insecurities and we're gonna see impure motives. And if we can focus on other people, then we don't have to worry about that. But see, here, here's where salvation is so important to Mary because she recognizes that in herself and she knows her need for a savior. She knows her need for a savior. Paul Tripp says that sin in any one of our lives can be summed up in five words. Those five words are separation, inability, delusion, judgment, and hopelessness. You and I have been born into a sinful estate. Mary herself was born with a sin nature. Not just born into it, but something that she and I and all of us continue to perpetuate when we rebel against God and his law. And what that has done is it has separated us from our creator. It separated us from him and it has robbed us of the very core reason for our existence. But not only has it separated us from him, but it, is, it has left us unable to be what he actually made us to be. I don't talk the way God intended me to talk. I don't think the way God intended me to think. Sin has distorted every aspect of my being and yours and Mary's. And then not only that, but it's created a blindness in me and a delusion that, you know what, maybe I'm actually better than I think that I am. One of the reasons, I read this article years ago. This was when on MTV, um, Real World was super popular, Jersey Shore, you know, these really high class TV shows, which I'm sure nobody in this room ever watched. But um, the article, it wasn't, it wasn't a Christian article, but it was saying the reason these shows are so incredibly popular in our culture is because it makes people feel so much better about themselves and their own lives. Like, man, my life's a train wreck, but it sure ain't those people. Turn it on and turn it up, let's go. And we live in this delusion of comparison. You're like, yeah, my marriage ain't great, but it ain't like theirs. And sin blinds us to the state of our separation and our inability, but it's not just that. It's that, that sin now that we, that we live in, that we've been born in, it actually puts us under God's judgment. We live under God's judgment, a judgment that brings about death, not just a physical death, but spiritual death. That's a part of the separation and ultimately an eternal death. That is the curse of all mankind. 
and ultimately leads to a hopelessness, an inability in any way to solve the predicament and the problem of sin that we all possess. Mary understands that. She says in verse 48, what? You have looked on the humble estate of your servant. She's much like Isaiah who declared, oh Lord, why me? For I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Mary knows it. And her praise and rejoicing is that in the midst of the sin and the brokenness and the lostness that she understands in her own heart, there is salvation coming. The most amazing news of the Christmas season is that God did not leave us in our state of separation. He did not leave us in a state of hopelessness. No, but he entered into our world. For the very child that was growing within this young woman's womb, the very child that was developing and would be born from her was God himself in human form. A God of love and grace and mercy that would do what? But meet God's standard of perfection that I, that you, that any of us are incapable of meeting. And in willingness and obedience would take all of that sin and all of its judgment and all of its hopelessness and all of its wickedness on himself in his own obedience, sacrificing and taking death fully on the cross, defeating sin once and for all. And not just defeating sin, but even death in his resurrection. Mary, Mary, did you know? I think she did. I think Mary realized it. And from that, what pours forth but this praise and rejoicing from every fiber of her body as she's sitting there with Elizabeth. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, says this for the Christian about the Christmas spirit. He says, the Christmas message is that there is hope for a ruined humanity. Hope of pardon, hope of peace with God, hope of glory. Because at the Father's will, Jesus Christ became poor and was born in a stable so that 30 years later, he might hang on a cross. It is the most wonderful message that the world has ever heard or will hear. Now we talk glibly, it's not a word we use very much anymore. We talk glibly of the Christmas spirit, rarely meaning more by this than sentimental jollity on a family basis. But what we have said makes it clear that the phrase should in fact carry a tremendous weight of meaning. It ought to mean the reproducing in human lives of the temper of him who for our sake became poor at the first Christmas. And so we praise and rejoice that this Christmas spirit will now be the mark of every Christian all year round. Salvation has come and there is much to rejoice, but it's not just that. Mary also understands that wrongs are being righted and that a world that has been living upside down is finally beginning to be put right side up. Look at verses 51 through 53. He has shown strength with his arm he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. 
Mary understands that the child within her is someone who is going to right the great injustices of this world and begin to put things correct again. There is a change in the air for Mary and there is excitement behind it. If you've ever had an opportunity to read C.S. Lewis's children's book, The Chronicles of Narnia, they're great. They're great. And I would highly recommend, no matter how old you are, read them. First of all, they're written on like a fifth grade level. So you can knock out the whole series in like a week. Look, everybody needs to win every now and then. So just like knock out a whole series of books. All right. But in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the second book in that series, we read of this kingdom of Narnia that's ruled by the white witch, right? And the white witch has placed a curse over the kingdom of Narnia. You can finish this phrase. In Narnia, it is always winter and never, it's never Christmas. In Narnia, it's always winter and never Christmas. So you have all of the cold, you have all of the bitterness, you have all of the dark, but none of the joy, none of the festivities, none of the feasting, none of the wonder and magic of the season. But something begins to happen in Narnia. She's chasing after three of the children and she begins to notice that the, the air is getting warmer and her sleigh suddenly starts getting stuck in the thaw of the snow and the ice. And finally, unable to no longer take her sleigh any further, she gets out and she begins walking with her servant and they come across but, but, but a group of animals who are feasting and rejoicing because Father Christmas has come back into Narnia and they're, they're opening presents and they're enjoying food and wine together. And she says, what is this? And what do they say? Aslan is on the move. The curse of winter is being broken and change is coming, and Narnia is being made right again. It's a picture of Advent. It's the picture that Mary is beginning to experience. All that is broken, all that is wrong, in a world where death has reigned, where sin has reigned. No, Aslan is on the move. The Savior is coming into the world who will not only right injustices, but conquer death itself, who will conquer sin, as Paul says to the church in Corinth, oh death, where is your victory? For it has been swallowed up, your sting. It's not there anymore. No, Mary has much, much to be joyful about and much, much to rejoice about from every fiber that she has within her. But then finally, there's this. She understands that salvation has come, that wrongs will be righted, but finally, finally, that God is fulfilling his promises to his people. Our God is a promise keeper. In a world of broken promises, thanks be to God that his mercy is not a broken promise. Look at verse 50 to start. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Stephen Ferris in his commentary talks about how this phrase is pointing to the fact that God's covenantal love is ongoing through his people that it does not wane, that it does not stop, but from generation to generation, his mercy continues. And in verse 54 and 55, what does Mary declare? She says, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. 
What did God declare to Abraham? In Genesis chapter 12, 15, and 17, God calls Abraham out of the nation of Ur. And he says, Abraham, I'm gonna give you this land of Canaan. And I'm going to make of you a great nation. And all families on the earth will be blessed because of you. Look at the stars, Abraham. You can't count them and you won't even be able to count your own descendants. And Abraham's like, God, I'm old. My wife is old. We are well past the ability to conceive. And he's like, don't worry, I will do this for you. And God says, this is how it's gonna work, Abraham. I'm gonna bless all peoples through you and through your offspring. And you are going to worship me and me alone. And so we're gonna enter into a covenant. And so in Genesis chapter 15, God has Abraham take all of these, all of these uh, animals and rip them in half and lay them out, right? Super gross, all right? But in the ancient world, this was how you entered into a contract. Today, you go to like a lawyer's office and you sign some documents, everything's notarized and you walk out. Back then, you ripped a bunch of animals in half. And what you would do is you would then, with this person you were entering into an agreement with, you would walk through the guts of these animals, right? So kings would do this or families would do this. And the idea is if, if you fail to live up to your end of the promise, your end of the covenant, you would become like the animals that you just walked through. Pretty crazy, right? Like today you get sued or you go bankrupt. Back then they ripped you in half. Although some of you would probably like to do that to people that have broke uh, contracts with you. But, but that's, that's what it was. So, so God has Abraham rip all of these animals apart. And it says this, it says that night came upon them and that God, the text is very clear about this. God made Abraham fall asleep. And then God alone passed through the animals. See, Abraham never, ever went through those animals. Only God did. Because God understood and God knew, Abraham, if, if you walk through those animals, I will have to kill you immediately because you are incapable in your sin of loving me with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind and with all of your strength. And Abraham, you are incapable of loving your neighbor as yourself. And so I will not allow you to walk through, but I will. And I will be held to the standard of this covenant that I have made with you. And I am good and I am faithful and I am merciful to see it through to completion. It's a picture of the cross. We have done nothing to earn our salvation. And yet God has done it all. And in the same way that he showed mercy to Abraham and he continued it on through his people, he has, brought it, he has brought it to completion here in the womb of this young woman, Mary. And now today, living with the understanding of the gospel, we look in faith to the day that God will bring it to completion when he returns. When all of us who are in Christ Jesus, who recognize our sin, who turn from it, who repent of it and call on the name of Jesus will be saved. And when he will return, making all things new, I long for that day. And that day, much like Mary, is what drives me in this Advent season to a spirit of praise and rejoicing. Pray with me, Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. And Lord, I thank you for your servant, Mary. Lord, what an amazing, amazing young woman. 
a blessed woman, a woman who knew her need for a savior, a woman who was excited that wrongs were being made right, and Lord, that knew you are a God who keeps his promises of mercy to the end. Heavenly Father, may this be true in our own lives as well. Lord, may we have hearts and minds and spirits that are marked with a deep sense of gratitude that leads to praise and rejoicing in a king who has come and one who will come again. In Christ's name we pray, amen.